Welcome to Borderlandia, the podcast where we embark on a journey to explore and celebrate the cultural heritage of the borderlands. I'm your host, Alex Lapierre, and I'm thrilled to have you join us on this immersive exploration of the rich tapestry that makes up our binational region. We are beginning this special podcast series with a special dedication to Jack S. Williams, an esteemed archaeologist from the Center of for Spanish Colonial Archaeology. He excavated the Tubac Presidio uh, in the last decades of the 20th century, uh, and I was fortunate enough to uh, record several conversations that we had, him revealing much of his wealth of information regarding the Spanish colonial past of uh, not only uh, Arizona, but also Sonora and wider northern colonial New Spain, today's American Southwest, uh, and northern Mexico. I hope you enjoy the series. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this first edition of our podcast for Borderlandia. Today, we have a very special guest. It's Jack Williams. He's tuning in today from Indiana, and I'm down in Hermosillo. And today, we're going to talk about the history of Tubac. Jack, welcome to the podcast, uh, and thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much. I'm really looking forward to chatting a little bit about a place near and dear to my heart, which is Tubac. It's amazing that we can do this now with electronics that we can talk over this huge distance, but it is fun. Yeah, across borders even. So why don't we start off with, where did you start with your association with Tubac? Well, my earliest memories of Tubac was when I was about 10 or 11 years old. My family visited Arizona frequently, and I I can remember visiting Tubac. And then the next time was right after the excavations of the Commandant's house that took place in the 1970s. I was there pretty close to right after they, I guess, opened the underground exhibit there. And then the next time was I was a graduate student at the University of Arizona in the early 1990s and visited. And I I got really involved with the site when the park superintendent with Bob Barncastle asked me to come down and help him try to see if an area that was going to be proposed for development might contain some Spanish colonial remains. It didn't take me very long to, to look at the Arutia map to see that about half of the Spanish colonial settlement was in the proposed development area. And what, what drew your, uh, your interest at such a young age to, the, to the, the topic of Spanish colonial history and Spanish colonial archaeology? Well, it kind of started out when, when I was a kid visiting Arizona, and I, I visited some Hocom sites and I was much impressed by looking at National Geographic and work of Emil Howery, and it really excited me. And it was at that point I kind of decided I wanted to go into archaeology. And then as I grew older, I was more and more focused on the historic period, partly because the wild speculation that goes into prehistoric archaeology didn't appeal to me very much. So I liked the fact that Spanish colonial history was a good framework with some overarching elements that you could tie directly to the archaeological record. So um, eventually I I volunteered 
when I was a teenager to work at San Diego Presidio and did work there. And um, once I had started studying the subject, it just seemed like it, it was an endless array of things that needed to be questioned and, and that were um, where evidence existed. Yeah. Um, well, my when I first met you, actually, I was I think I was in middle school, and my father found an ad in the in the Union Tribune newspaper mentioning that young students could help the archaeologists there at the Presidio, and it really changed my life and changed the course of my life, and really drew me into this passion that I have today, like you do for for this era uh, as well. Well, it's one of those things you 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 know you kind of plant seeds as a scholar and as a teacher. And you, you just never know which of those seeds are going to germinate and turn into more research. But um, I'm extremely thankful that so many people during my lifetime were willing to help me to understand this topical area. And so I have always felt like I, I wanted to share it, too, with other people, especially young people, so that they will get it, be excited by it. And then the research will continue because there's always a danger that that research will stop because lack of interest. But I think the lack of interest is most frequently caused by the fact that the history doesn't get conveyed. Conveying history is important. And I've always felt that doing things in a way that is both popular and scholarly is important. You know, it's not enough just to write for fellow scholars. You really need to to go on a deeper outreach than that. And that said, what, what do you think are some of the, the key points that you'd like to communicate to people about the history of Tubac? What do you think the public needs to have a greater awareness for? I think one of the most important things about Tubac is that it is a location where an awful lot of very important events took place. And that it's one of the few locations that you can go to that you can really authentically know that you're in the same place that um, these important events took place. And this goes back to the early 18th century with the development of a mission visita and then the creation of the Presidio and its various fates of, you know, turning into a town and then being abandoned and being repopulated. And then, of course, after the Spanish period, the continued importance into the Mexican era and then finally its early importance in Anglo-American mining history all of which make it really one of the premier historical places in the state. And certainly that was one of the things that prompted the idea of having the first state park there. And why Tubac? Why was Tubac selected as the site for the Presidio in what's now the first Presidio in what's now the state of Arizona? That's an interesting question, and I don't think there's an absolutely definitive answer. But I think that the main reasons why the Presidio developed at Tubac was because of its strategic placement in the Santa Cruz River Valley. So the garrison that was established there was located there in order to support the surrounding mission communities, particularly as far north as as Tucson and as far south as Nogales area. So the hope was by having a garrison there, patrols and expeditions could project strength over that whole area and preserve those places in the event of either Indian uprising or attacks from the outside by groups like the Apaches. So I don't think there's much doubt. But there was a huge debate over where it should go at the time the Presidio was established. There were people suggesting Aravaca and some as far north as Tucson. But Tubac won the prize. 
You mentioned the Urrutia map and, you know, from the 1760s, which is a marvelous document. One thing that, you you know, one can notice from that map is kind of the haphazard nature of, of the settlement. You know, when we think of a fort, we think of a structure with four defensive walls. Can you talk a little bit about the urban morphology of historical Tubac in the Spanish colonial era? Yeah, Tubac actually is, is pretty consistent with the pattern we see in presidios established during the early 18th century. What you need to understand first and foremost is the word presidio itself means garrison place more than it means fort. So the fact that there was a garrison in Tubac made it a presidio, not the fact that it was a big fortress. Now, a few of the presidios built before 1750 were fortified along the northern frontier, places like Orcasitas, for example. But uh, Tubac, like many of the others, essentially had a large commandant's house, which was a private residence, surrounded by the homes of the soldiers and settlers, which were rather ad hocly placed informally around two large plazas. And there was no real, like, fort that you can say was there at that time. And instead, the only building that was significantly fortified was probably the commandant's house, which, as I said, could probably be better conceived of as like the commandant's mansion than it was a fort per se. And in the commandant's house, not only did the garrison commander and his staff and and servants live, but also the unmarried soldiers in the garrison also would have slept there, providing a picket of soldiers to protect the place, but also the married soldiers' expectations was they would have their own houses, which were essentially one-room adobe homes. They were quite simple, and we, we were able to investigate a number of those, and so we have a pretty good handle on what they were like. But the commandant's house had probably a formal dining room, a chapel, uh, you know, storage rooms, a variety of buildings were combined with it. And this was the pattern over much, much of the northern frontier. The commander's houses combined, and all of this really reflects in a very direct way the, the informal nature of the Presidio system before 1772, the fact that the commanders of these garrisons were essentially in charge of a militia company, not a regular company of soldiers. And the expectation was that this militia would also constitute settlers. So they were colonist militiamen. And they, they did get paid, but they got paid a very modest amount, which was almost, it was almost like they got a, a bonus for being in the garrison rather than making their, their living that way. They mostly made their living by farming and ranching. And in some cases, from the largesse of the commandant, who was responsible for paying for their uniforms and equipment and making the land grants, which allowed them to have in the towns, suertes, and then beyond the towns, the milpas and the, and the other lands that they could gain a control and came from the commanders, the capitanes. And the house itself, probably like, for example, the commander's house in Tubac should first and foremost be conceived of as like the Casa del Belderain, who built it, and then it became the Casa de Anza. He acquired the house, he purchased it, and when he left Tubac, I believe it was around 1780, he transferred the title to the government so that the second presidio period of Tubac, it was a government building, and then it remained a government building into the Mexican period before it once again became a private residence under the Anglo-Americans who came and used Tubac as their mining headquarters. 
but it went through many stages and changes and transformations and evolution. But what it wasn't was a government for intentionally built tech tubac. It was a, a first and foremost a private home. One fascinating detail that you revealed to me that I was really struck by was the presence of a basement or dungeon-like structure in the Commandant House. Could you talk a little bit more about that? What we discovered, to our great surprise, was that subterranean chambers are scarce in general in Sonora and across the northern frontier for a variety of reasons. They just weren't built very much like basements are in, in the northeast. But what happened in the case of Tubac was they built a uh, defensive structure, it would appear, adjacent to the main gate into this plaza-style commandant's house. And eventually, this corner structure became a kind of defensive bastion. And that almost certainly, it's marked on the Urutia map as the the guardhouse. And so what we discovered was that this guardhouse had a basement-like dungeon down below it. And the amazing thing that we got down into it in a very hot and sweaty summer, I must say, investigation, we discovered that the building had collapsed. And my guess is that it probably collapsed in the 1780s, 1790 or so. And when it did, it smashed all sorts of trash into the floor, but then the remains of the roofing, the top of that building, and the things that were on top of the roofing, because it was a platform where people clearly had domestic activities, were all pretty easy to read. So we were able to see the matting and uh, characteristic roof elements. And then there was an inordinate number of cow skulls and cattle bones on the floor that had been smashed into the floor. Now, this was important evidence in part because it really gives us an understanding of the kinds of cattle that were being raised in Arizona in the Spanish period. And of course, what they weren't was longhorns. They were, uh, you know, uh, probably a pretty rugged Andalusian breed, I suspect. And so at some point, there'd probably been primary butchering that had gone on there. And they had, as convenience, they weren't using it. So they used this old pit underneath the building to throw their debris. Now, I searched around for evidence of similar structures, and I did find one. In uh, one of the narratives of Fronteras, the guardhouse there also had a subterranean chamber like that. So I was able to find some documentary evidence for similar structures. And my guess is that earlier on, the same subterranean area had probably been used more or less as a jail because you could run a ladder down there, throw somebody down in the basement, pull the ladder out, and they weren't going to be able to get out of there uh, at all easily. So it was part of this investigation of the guardhouse that we made, but it was clearly a two-chambered area. And then it was pretty obvious that the upper surface, like I said, And this was true of a lot of the Sonoran houses of the time period, was that people spent a lot of their daily lives actually on the roofs of their houses, especially in the summer when it was so terribly hot. People would go up there and sleep. And it was much safer than sleeping at ground level outside, like the front door. So it was a popular place to be. But a pretty amazing structure, and it was a hell to to investigate because we had to find it at the end of the season when the rains and the monsoon started. So it was like, you know, we were bailing a lot of water as we got our way down to it. But it was well worth the effort. Another detail that you often see in depictions of the Presidio is the presence of a tower. Can you speak a little bit more to that? Yeah, towers were a common feature added on to houses for protection. So torreones are pretty common. Some are square, some are round. And a lot of the reconstructions you see of the Commandant's house are based on a mid-19th century drawing showing the house, and it appears to have a tower and 
as the building fell into ruins, there was a tower-like structure at one corner. That tower is not the one that was over the guardhouse, however. One of the things that our excavation showed very clearly was that the ground plan of the original house had been significantly obliterated and changed over time. And what you're seeing in those photographs and in that drawing are the later stages of the building. So my guess is there was probably a tower-like structure where the, uh, the guard house was, which would have been fairly typical of these frontier outposts. And it was in many ways a very public place because this is where by law, public proclamations, and there would have been the changing of the guard ceremony every, every day because they kept a guard 24 hours a day at, at Presidios typically in the guardhouse, usually made up of a crew of about three people. And they were, you could think of them as sort of the town sheriff and police, as well as 24-hour guard. That would have been an important feature. And it was there that, for example, when a new monarch took the throne, that would be announced and things like that were all taking place there. And they would nail public proclamations to the door of the of the guardhouse. So we, we know we have different details and pieces of the story from not only Tubac, from, from other locations and things like the regulations of 1729. It'd be kind of fun someday to see the changing of the guard ceremony reenacted there. It could be done. We know enough about it that you could do a fairly decent job. But that was typical of CDOs both in the earlier period and the later time period to have a 24-hour guard. And it's a guardhouse where they stay. And it's also the guardhouse, which is typically combined with the jail. Because, of course, if you've got a guard standing there 24 hours a day, you might as well have them also be in charge of the prisoners. And who would have been in the jail? Well, somebody that got drunk, maybe. Disorderly soldiers. Indian captives were often stuck there. And when they weren't down below doing, uh, you know, doing their time, so to speak, they would have been brought up to the service level and forced to do hard labor. Things like sweeping the plaza moving loads of rocks, things like that. So uh, there was a lot of abuse. A lot of the commanders were accused of using prisoners and even their soldiers as sort of a private labor force to get their, their own personal work done. Yeah, I've read details of, about that as far as Presidio Petit with Vilosala, uh, what is now Hermosillo as well, um, getting in trouble for using the Native American prisoners for basically free labor. As far as some of the, the, the features of the commandant's house, do you suspect that it would have been plastered with lime? Were the floors, what were the full floors made of? Were they just dirt floors stamped down? Overwhelmingly, the floors were mescla, which is to say concrete. So that was a little bit surprising. We thought we might find a tile surface, sort of like the one at Tumacacri, for example. But instead, what we found were clearly concrete floors. And when I say concrete, I mean a mixture of quicklime, gravel, and cement. And the walls themselves were covered with lechada, which is a thinner solution made up of, for example, typically goat's milk and lime. So I think if you had visited the house on the interior, it would have been quite strikingly white walls. And then the walls probably decorated in some of the rooms with some kind of detailing along the base and tops of the walls. Uh, day those, for example. And the exterior of the building, I suspect, probably strongly reflected the same kind of architecture as places like the, the Rancho de los Golondrinas in, in uh, the Santa Fe area. So they, you, you have to imagine 
brown adobe walls on the exteriors, but the interior is probably quite light and bright. And then with roofs that were made up of wooden elements and then the smaller elements representing matting or uh, small twig-like diameter wood. With, it, wouldn't it wouldn't shock me that it was laid, laid out in sort of a herringbone pattern. And then the roofs themselves, probably pretty, pretty thick, couple feet of soil. So they had to be fairly strong because people were expected to be up on the tops of the roofs. And then functionally, the walls on the sides were extended. So there was an effectively a real parapet in place that you could hide behind in the event of an Indian attack. So that's probably the kind of building we're looking at here. But I don't think it would be a mistake to think of life being extraordinarily crude on the interiors of those rooms. We found, by the way, the exact same sort of floor in our investigations at Mission San Javier del Bac in the uh, so-called candle room. We found a floor that was identical, I think. The only difference being the one in San Javier del Bac was in much better condition because it had been roofed continuously since the 18th century. And of course, the ones in Tubac have been exposed to water leaching activities and things like that. Now, by the time we're talking about the U.S. period and the mining community there, it may have returned to dirt floors. But in the Spanish period, I think we're talking about a reasonably elegant house. And of course, you have to think about it because the Bilderang was frontier standards was like a millionaire. So he had a very nice home. Almost certainly one room would have been devoted to uh, a family chapel. There would have been a dining room and a sala for just hanging out in, and then individual bedrooms, plus a significant area for storage. Some of the storage would have been used as the Presidio Company store, which was also operated by the Commandant. And then probably, perhaps on even a porch-like setting, was where the unmarried soldiers, the new recruits, were expected to stay. And they would remain hanging out at the Commandant's house, so to speak, until such time as they married once they married, they were eligible for a land grant and would have been would have been capable of moving into their own family homes. Mm -hmm. And then over time, what we see in Tubac, as well as much of the frontiers, these um, Spanish settlers were largely patrilocal and their families were heavily patrilineal. So basically, when women married, they would move in to the household of their husbands. And the typical thing to do was you'd have, say, the first generation soldier would build his one room house. And then maybe he has two sons. One of the two sons would join the army. The other son might go more into ranching and farming as their activities. And they would add their one room houses onto the first house. So what you get over time in anthropological terms are lineage houses. So you have these long rows of rooms which are made up of patrilineal people that are tracing their descent through their husbands and fathers so that all these people are related to the male side of their family. And we can actually see in Tubac even more recent examples of that around the state park. There are, there are still these lineage houses still around there. And we found much evidence for them in the South Barrio. We found lots of examples. Although the earliest houses in Tubac were less likely to be made out of adobe bricks than they were to be, to be made out of wattle and daub and thatch. And then over time, they were replaced by more sturdy adobe houses. Um, but this also seems the case at other presidios. There's quite a number of examples of these kind of jacales or chozas across the frontier. And probably most of the houses shown on the Rutia map are in fact not adobes, but are in fact these kind of 
less formal structures. And Jack, there's two names associated with the community of Tubac, two patron saints. There's that marvelous lance with the engraving that they have at the museum, San Ignacio de Tubac. And then when the the Presidio was reactivated for the second time, you have the name San Rafael. Can you speak to maybe where the origins of those patron saints came in, uh, especially particularly the name San Ignacio? It's an interesting question. I don't think there's a definitive answer. What we do know is that in the 1770s, there was a big move to start imprinting the equipment the soldiers used with inscriptions like that. Um, I've actually found some other regulations that called for the, you know, writing the names right into the blades. And that was partially to show that that was owned by the crown. But why San Ignacio and not, why not Santa Ana, for example, is an interesting question. And the, there's nothing about, of course, San Rafael is famous as a, a warrior saint. So that could maybe in part explain that one. But San Ignacio, I'm not so clear as to why he would be conceived of inherently as a militaristic saint. And why not another saint? But my guess is that the choice of the particular saint for local devotions would have been uh, most likely uh, that of the commandant. So it wouldn't surprise me that there wasn't some special family connection with the Beldorains and then later with the Anzas in terms of choosing the particular saint they got their name on everything. And this also has to do with some of the confusion around this, once again, this word presidio. If you go back to the 16th century, you find the word presidio was often used quite literally for the garrison. So you will see documents that'll talk about presidios de infantería and uh, presidios de caballería. And, and so it was really the garrison that was the quote presidio. And then that begins to change and evolve. So the garrison becomes transferred to the place. And then the thing that gets really complicated is sometimes the garrison will be moved from that location to another location. And on those occasions, the name often transfers with them to the new place. That's one theory that I have heard, you know, that the during the Pima uprising, that the main kind of nerve center for the Spanish uh, military operations was San Ignacio de Cabo Rica. And perhaps because that was the military center when it when the Presidio was established that the name carried over. It wouldn't be a shocker if that was the case. What little I've seen of other places it makes it altogether ambiguous. But there's no question that names move around quite a bit of the time. I mean, the most one of the most notorious examples is the Presidio of Santa Cruz, which, you know, was at Terranate. So it, it started out as the Presidio of Terranate. Then it became the Presidio of Santa Cruz de Terranate. Then it became the Presidio of Santa Cruz de Terranate at Las Nutrias. Then it became Santa Cruz. And yes, yeah, it's, it's a marvelous story of how it wandered around uh, between the U.S. And, and also the Mexican side nowadays as well. Well, the story of Santa Cruz de Ternate is especially interesting, partly because in many ways it's the opposite of Tubac. Tubac was very fortunate to have good commanders and generally a kind of upbeat Spanish story. Santa Cruz de Ternate had wretched commanders and some of the most notorious inappropriate behaviors along the frontier. So they're kind of a curious juxtaposition with it, you know, Anza being probably the most famous of the two Bacanos, but um, Jose Antonio Vidosola being one of the most less than pleasant commanders in the history of the frontier 
over at Santa Cruz de Ternate. And of course, also Francisco Tuvar, who was a notorious drunk, operated a bordello at Las Nutrias right before they moved out and eventually was found guilty of faking records and being drunk all the time. Really different. Yeah, no, fascinating, all of those details. Well, Jack, we're at the half an hour mark. I want to thank you so much for this first episode, this kind of introduction into the history of the marvelous community of Tubac in Southern Arizona. Jack Williams of the Center for Spanish Colonial Archaeology. Thank you so much. And uh, we look forward to continuing this conversation next week. Very good. Bye. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode. You can find more information by visiting us at borderlandia.org. We are a binational organization committed to building public understanding of the borderlands. Thank you.